This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of men. You are the Renaissance. Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to Poetry for Men, part of the Renaissance of Men podcast. I know it's been a few weeks since my last poem. Thanksgiving and a pair of barbarians visiting at my apartment changed my regular schedule, and this has been a particularly time-consuming poem to interpret, which you'll see. But as it turns out, the timing of this poem, given the subject matter, couldn't be better. So thanks for your patience, and let's get into it. Now, if you've been paying attention, you might have noticed that all the poems I've read so far have had one thing in common. It's that they were all written after the year 1800. In fact, the earliest poem, Psalm of Life by Longfellow, was written around 1838. In the history of English language poetry, those poems are all fairly recent, and we can recognize that in the structure of the language. The formality of Longfellow's lines gives way to the cadence of the early 20th century Rilke, who is more familiar to our ears, and then to Nolan, Kinnell, Bukowski, and Blumenthal, all writing in the second half of the last century. The birth of the English language as we know it today, however, is generally attributed to the writing of William Shakespeare, who lived from 1564 to 1616. So it seems there's an additional 300-some years of English poetry for us to explore. And that's what we're going to start to do today. A couple months ago, I met up with my dad for lunch one afternoon, and he gave me the gift of three books of poetry from my collection, totaling more than a thousand additional pages and hundreds of new poems. So in addition to saying thanks, Dad, for the wonderful and touching gift, I thought the best way to show my appreciation would be to start exploring some of those books and the poems within them, diving deeper into the history of poetry that predates our more or less modern era. Many of the poems I've read up until this point have come from the book, The Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart, which I mentioned in my introductory episode. I've also read a couple from the book, Poems That Make Grown Men Cry, which for the most part lives up to its name. I'll provide a link in the show notes to each if you'd like to check them out. The poem I'm going to read today is from the book, The Best Poems of the English Language by the famous critic Howard Bloom, who's been a noted professor at both Harvard and Yale and has received a MacArthur Genius Prize. So I have a feeling he knows what he's talking about. Now get ready to jump in the time machine because we're going all the way back to the Shakespearean era in the early 1600s with the poet who Howard Bloom calls the devotional poet proper in English, George Herbert. Herbert was born in 1593 in Wales as one of 10 children in a family powerful both locally and nationally. His father was a member of parliament and his mother Magdalene was a patron and friend of clergyman and legendary poet John Donne, who incidentally was George's godfather. Individuals who blend the arts and religion are rare today, but I suppose this might be a bit like having Christian apologist and novelist C.S. Lewis for a godfather. It's a good setup for literary success, especially in an era of English literature where William Shakespeare, John Milton, and Francis Bacon walked upon the same island. Sadly, George's father passed away when George was just three years old, leaving him and his siblings to be raised by their mother, by all accounts a capable woman who encouraged her children to get the best possible education. And she succeeded. 
According to Wikipedia, George's oldest brother, Edward Herbert, the inheritor of the estate, became a soldier, diplomat, historian, poet, philosopher, and father of English deism, which seeks revelatory knowledge through the natural world. And George's younger brother, Sir Henry, became master of the revels to Kings Charles I and II. In other words, he was the guy in charge of the kingliest of parties. Talk about being born between a pair of overachievers. Not to be outdone, George was educated at Trinity College in Cambridge, eventually being elected the school's public orator, or the man who speaks on behalf of the university at public gatherings. This was a prestigious position and was considered a stepping stone to a successful career at court, and Herbert was apparently good at it. But life had other plans for him. And this is where things get interesting, because it's time for a brief history lesson. Herbert was born during a time of intrigue in England. Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation in Germany in 1517 with his publication of the 95 Theses, basically calling out the Catholic Church's corruption. As we all know, the Catholic Church doesn't like being criticized too much, and as a result, they initiated the Counter-Reformation in 1540, a historical era that included such lovely episodes as the Spanish Inquisition, the Thirty Years' War, the Trial of Galileo, the excommunication of Queen Elizabeth I, and the execution of the Italian philosopher Giordano Bruno, who proposed, among other things, the ludicrous notion that the stars were distant suns around which revolved other planets, which might foster life of their own. Crazy, right? Although, to be fair, that's not why he was executed. He basically challenged all the core tenets of the Catholic faith, including the divinity of Christ, and as it turns out, Catholics don't like that either. By the way, from the Catholic perspective, the Counter-Reformation only lasted, oh, about 400 years. It came to a definitive end with the Second Vatican Council in 1962. Meanwhile, back in England, following Martin Luther's split from the Catholic Church, Henry VIII also separated from Rome in the 1530s over his desire to have a divorce, which initiated a time of deep religious divisions in England. This led to the formation of the Anglican Church, another branch of Christianity, like the Protestants, but with Henry VIII as the supreme head of the religion. What could possibly go wrong? But for some people, the influence of Catholicism was still too strong in the Anglican religion, and they sought to purify the Anglican Church of its Roman influence. These people became known as Puritans, and thousands of them migrated to a distant land known as Massachusetts in the 1620s. So, religiously, England and Europe were a mess during Herbert's time, so he did what any young man would do, become a priest. In some sense, this seems to have been his inclination all his life, because he wrote as early as 1618 about, quote, setting foot into divinity to lay the platform of my future life. But at the same time, George's highly placed friends and politics and court also faltered. And since, as they say, your network is your net worth, George's network restricted his possibilities to such a degree that he ultimately was compelled to surrender to his faithful nature. But what's fascinating is the contrast between what actually happened in Herbert's life and how his life was portrayed to the public. He was ready to take his holy orders in 1624, but until 1630, he bounced between several different locations, searching for a proper parish in which to do so. During this time, he was uncertain of the ultimate direction of his spiritual duties, uncertain about his finances, and also occasionally in seriously ill health. Finally, in 1629, Herbert was married, and by 1630, he had settled in a small countryside parish and had received his ordination. His long years of wondering and wandering had come to a close. But then tragically, in 1633, at just 39 years old, he contracted tuberculosis and died. In that same year, his first volume of poetry, The Temple, was published. And if you were paying attention to the history lesson, 
This is why I share that information. Recall that Herbert was born in a time of great religious division in both England and Europe. But Herbert, the well-spoken, principled, high-born son with his passionate poetry of devotion to God, seemed the perfect avatar for custodians of his legacy to reestablish trust in the church. And that's just what happened. George Herbert the man became holy Mr. Herbert. Writers at the time likened him to the original saints, praising him for his humble devotion and for being a, quote, heavenly soul. In effect, they held him up as the model for harmonious, orderly, and unquestioning devotion to the established social and religious order. But as we'll see in a moment, his truth is a bit more complicated. But that's not to say the portrayal was totally false. Herbert began writing poetry during his Cambridge days. In 1610, he wrote his mother, quote, that all my poor abilities in poetry shall all and ever be consecrated to God's glory. So, understandably, that's what he wrote about. He used his poetry not just to explore his own relationship with God, but also to advance social dialogue about spiritual subjects, perhaps blending in some of his oratory background. He also wrote of moral lessons, Bible stories, the crucifixion, and also the sense of peace granted to him by his spiritual knowing. It's hard to imagine any poet today devoting their entire career specifically to Christian imagery. I imagine such a man might be canceled if he tried. But regardless, that Herbert gave himself so totally over to spiritual writings influenced generations of later poets, including Coleridge, Emerson, Dickinson, T.S. Eliot, W.H. Oden, and even Robert Frost. It also helped feed into his image as a devoted follower of Christ and the Anglican Church at a time when many Englishmen around him felt a doubt. And with these thoughts in mind, we're ready to look into the heart of holy Mr. Herbert and witness the truth of a man who played such a pivotal role in a nation, a faith, and an art. This is The Caller by George Herbert. I struck the board and cried, No more, I will abroad. What, shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines in life are free, free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. Shall I be still in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me blood and not restore what I have lost with cordial fruit? Sure, there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it? No flowers, no garlands gay, all blasted, all wasted? Not so, my heart, but there is fruit, and thou hast hands. Recover all thy sigh-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not. Forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made and made to thee good cable, to enforce and draw and be thy law, while thou didst wink and would not see. Away, take heed, I will abroad. Call in thy death's head there, tie up thy fears. He that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. But as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word, methought I heard one calling, Child. And I replied, My Lord. I'm not sure about you, but that doesn't sound like an unquestioning man to me. The first thing of note about this poem, I think, is the title, which is a clever play on words. On one hand, the caller, of course, refers to Herbert's chosen profession of the priesthood, which is represented by its unique collar. On the other hand, a collar can also refer to an object used to tether someone to something, like a dog in a collar, on a leash. And Herbert means both in this instance. His priestly collar is also a restrictive collar, holding him in place, as we see throughout the poem, 
but especially at the end. The second thing of note is just how brash and blustery this poem is. Almost the entire thing takes the form of a fiery rant and argument against himself? Who exactly is he talking to? In Psalm of Life, Longfellow says in the subtitle, what the heart of the young man said to the psalmist. So that's an interior dialogue. But it's pretty clear that Herbert is speaking out loud. In the first line, he strikes the board and cries, no more, I will abroad. And the remainder of the poem remains within the same quotation marks. Then at the end, he describes himself like this, as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word. So he's talking out loud. The entire poem is one extended rant at himself, hopefully alone in his room, or someplace else where no one's listening. Well, almost no one. Then there's the first half of the poem, which takes the form of a series of questions. Shall I ever sigh and pine? Shall I be still in suit? What have I lost with cordial fruit? Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it? No flowers, no garlands gay? All blasted, all wasted? Perhaps you've encountered the phenomenon where you're asking a friend for advice, and yet you know that their answer will depend on how you frame your questions. We all do it, ask leading questions so that our friend will give us the answer we want to hear. And Herbert is doing the same, framing the questions of his life so that they focus on what he's lost so he can find the will within himself to do the thing he clearly wants to do, which is to hit the road. Or as he puts it twice, I will abroad. And I'd just like to point out that it's been almost 400 years since Herbert wrote this poem. Some things never change. Men longing to cast off their mundane responsibilities and strike out for adventure. I can certainly relate, and I'm sure many other men can too. So in the first half of the poem, he's asking himself these questions. And in the second half of the poem, it seems he's made up his mind. But consider that travel in the 1600s was a bit different than today. When I left San Francisco to travel in 2016, I sold my belongings and hopped on an airplane. I arrived in Buenos Aires in about 16 hours. But to get abroad in the 17th century would have required a boat. And so I think the poem has subtle maritime imagery that suggests that his current life and a life at sea might have a bit in common. My lines in life are free. Loose is the wind. Thou hast hands. Thy rope of sands. Good cable to enforce and draw and be thy law and call in thy death's head there, tie up thy fears. In one sense, these phrases can be read as describing the restrictiveness of his life at home. But on further readings, I feel like they might be foreshadowing a risky journey at sea that he liked to embark on as a sailor rather than a passenger. If he wishes to abroad, coming from England, he won't have many other options. And of course, literature and film are full of stories of young men who go on just such a journey. I'm thinking of Moby Dick, Treasure Island, and even into the wild in a sense. Young men seeking freedom have a special relationship with the sea, which would be worthy of an entire poetry episode in itself. Maybe I'll read Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Coleridge. Regardless, the sea is where Herbert seems to settle by the end of his rant, determining that he that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. Essentially, he's declaring that if you fail to pursue your dreams, you deserve the misery of bondage that you get. So these are all the things that Herbert is saying on the surface. This is the text of his argument. But what's the subtext? What's going on beneath the meaning of the words? And if you'll recall our discussion of Galway Kennel's Last Gods, what I loved most about that poem was the number of interlocking layers that needed to be teased apart to appreciate the full richness of the work. The same is true here. Let's look first at the layout of the poem, 
and for that you may want to click the link in the description to see for yourself. The lines are all of varying lengths, using both complete sentences and sentence fragments. This visually represents the chaos Herbert is experiencing, fragmented and frantic thoughts bouncing through his brain and skating by the filter over his mouth. So it would seem on a first pass that Herbert is achieving the freedom he seeks in his mode of speech. But let's look even closer. This is a poem after all, so let's look at the rhythmic pattern. Here are the first few lines. I struck the board and cried, No more, I will abroad. What, shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines in life are free, free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. Shall I be still in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me blood and not restore what I have lost with cordial fruit? There's a metrical pattern peeking through here, iambic quatrameter. Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me blood and not restore what I have lost with cordial fruit? That's four metrical feet, four iams per line. You can hear the rhythm in those words, I hope. So in his longing for freedom, some part of Herbert is still following the rules. Then through the middle of the poem, the meter fades. Recover all thy sigh-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not. Forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made and made to thee. Very dramatic. And while we can feel the skill in writing, it's escaped a regular metrical pattern. Then by the end, the iambic feet come back. He that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. So maybe he's not as free as his argument makes him seem. So that then, when the poem closes, but as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word, methought I heard one calling child, and I replied, my lord. The regular iambic meter has returned again, and his argument is silenced. And the final clue is in the metaphoric imagery. At the very beginning of the poem, he says, have I no harvest but a thorn to let me blood and not restore? And then later he references wine, a crown, and law. This is unavoidable Christian imagery. So if we imagine the logic of his argument coming from his head and body, and the varying metrical pattern coming from the beat of his heart, perhaps we might say that the subtle Christian metaphor woven through the poem is speaking for his soul. It's a voice he might be trying to drown out. So let's put all these pieces together and ask the one really important question. What would he have done if God hadn't intervened? Because that is the dramatic question of the poem. Okay, damn it. I'm out of here, he says. And then he proceeds to lay out the case why this time he's really going. We'll give him a pass on the I will abroad line, which he repeats because to paraphrase Shakespeare, perhaps he doth protest too much. On one hand, there's the fragmented lines the broken metrical pattern, and the blustery tone and language. Throw in the maritime imagery too. Now on the other hand, we have the questions that suggest maybe he's leading the witness a bit. And then you have the reestablishment of meter by the end, along with the Christian imagery. He is truly torn in half. And to be honest, I don't know what he would have done without God's intervention. But that's not the purpose of the poem. Herbert is making a point about the conflict that lives in the man of higher calling. The poem reveals his fragmentation of mind, heart, and soul, and how they each struggle with the other, and how he struggles with himself. And his final point is that ultimately, that struggle can only be resolved by God, by faith, and by service. Notice how after lines of bluster, bravado, boasting, and bravery, the storms in him are silenced by a single word. Child. The maritime imagery comes in handy here to imagine a ship on a troubled sea, and that sea being miraculously calmed by a single word from the Lord. 
Maybe some of you listening to this are religious. Maybe some of you are not. But I know this feeling of having all my turmoil silenced by an inner knowing and the subtle sense of chastisement that sometimes comes with it too. I speak often of the precision of language that poetry requires, and we see it on display here with another play on words. Child in this instance can mean my child, as in a child of God, as all humans are. And child can also mean you're being childish. God in this case probably means both. Leave it to him to say so much with so little. Notice also how everything comes to a stop with my Lord. All of Herbert's struggle is silenced, all his bluster extinguished, any hint of conflict resolved. He closes the poem with a period, not an exclamation point or ellipsis. The matter is not left open for him. He has his answer. And in that closing line, perhaps, we also feel that he finds a measure of peace, even if we can imagine some part of him remains unsatisfied and always will. And as you listen to this poem again, a second time, I ask you to think of moments of moral crisis in your life. What resolved them? Were they resolved? Does Herbert capture your experience of inner conflict between wants and needs, desires and commitments, longings and callings? Is it possible that 400 years in the past, he's describing not just his own experience, but a very human experience, and perhaps even one of the core experiences of being a man, and especially being a man of faith today? I wish you all a very Merry Christmas. And once again, this is The Caller by George Herbert. I struck the board and cried, No more, I will abroad. What, shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines in life are free, free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. Shall I be still in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me blood and not restore what I have lost with cordial fruit? Sure, there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it? No flowers? No garlands gay? All blasted? All wasted? Not so, my heart, but there is fruit, and thou hast hands. Recover all thy sigh-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not. Forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made and made to thee good cable to enforce and draw and be thy law, while thou didst wink and would not see. Away, take heed, I will abroad. Call in thy death's head there, tie up thy fears. He that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. But as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word, methought I heard one calling, Child, and I replied, My Lord. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform 
at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.